growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Economies are crashing, buildings are crumbling, and people's fears and anxiety are rising. Wars, natural disasters, economic and political chaos. If 2012 is anything like 2011, we're in for some uncertain times. But a question that's on the minds of many is, are these the end times? NBC and CBS and ABC and Fox don't have the answers to these questions. Oprah or Dr. Phil, the answers to these questions are only found in the Word of God. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Most of us have seen or read the stories over the last couple of years about the Mayan calendar's supposed prediction that the world will end in 2012. Hollywood has made blockbuster movies about the end of the world. The current political and economic instability throughout the world have certainly raised people's fears and anxiety. But could we really be in the last days? We're excited about you joining us today as we kick off a brand new series that's going to look at that very question. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus sits down and answers his disciples' questions about the end times. And as Pastor Clay is going to explain, what Jesus told them must have come as quite a shock. Why would God let that happen? I thought God protected his people. Listen to me. Moving out from underneath God's will is a very dangerous thing, ladies and gentlemen. There certainly is a lot of uncertainty in the world today. And like Jesus' disciples, then people want to know when the end will be. But Jesus makes it clear that his followers do not need to be afraid. Now here's Pastor Clay with today's message from the series, The Days After Tomorrow. I may have mentioned this to you a few months ago, but... Uh, the association, our association where our townhome is, um, decided to have all of our front doors painted. And uh, a painter was at our house uh, painting, and I struck up this conversation with him, and right in the middle of the conversation, he asks, so, do you think the world is coming to an end? It's a question, quite honestly, that a lot of people are asking. Governments are falling, economies are crashing, buildings are crumbling, and people's fears and anxiety are rising. What in the world is going on? Because there's a lot going on in the world. If you were with us, if you happen to be here in 2010, you may know that we spent a year in the book of Revelation. And much of the book of Revelation deals with the end times. And so you may be a little surprised that we would approach that subject matter again relatively soon after walking through the book of Revelation. But I happen to believe, it's just my opinion, not mine only, but I I happen to believe that we really are in the last days before Jesus Christ returns. I mean, I really believe that. And so obviously the subject matter has great relevance for our lives. God obviously does not want us to be ignorant on the subject because he talks a great deal about it. And like my painter, people are asking questions. And 
NBC and CBS and ABC and Fox don't have the answers to these questions. Oprah or Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz or Dr. Nancy don't have the answers to these questions. Judge Judy and Judge Joe Brown don't even have the answer to these questions. The answers to these questions are only found in the Word of God. That's the only place you'll find the answers to these questions about what in the world is going on and what in the world is going to happen and go on as we come toward the end of days, towards the days after tomorrow. What happens as we draw near to this? And for that reason, and as we start a new year, and because there's been all kinds of Uh, Hollywood blockbuster movies made about it and all types of predictions made about 2012, I thought it was appropriate that we spend the next several weeks looking at a passage of Scripture that is sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Discourse means teaching. It is the last teaching that Jesus does before he is crucified. It's the last teaching that Jesus does in the last week of his life, and the teaching is about the last days. Lots of people want to know. Lots of people are asking questions. What in the world is going on? So we're going to spend some time looking at this teaching known as the Olivet Discourse. It's a hill, really. It's named the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was on this Mount of Olives with his disciples when he gave this last teaching. It's really a a hill that looks across to the city of Jerusalem, the walled city in those days, and still parts of it are walled, the, the walled city of Jerusalem separated by a valley known as the Kidron Valley. Jesus' teaching on the end times, Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 24 and 25, is birthed out of some teaching that Jesus did in Matthew 23. Some teaching that is pretty harsh. Jesus, in Matthew 23, Jesus comes down on the Pharisees. He tended to do that a lot, didn't he? Man-made formalism and traditions and, and fake religion has no place as far as God is concerned. And, and so in Matthew 23, Jesus comes down pretty hard on the Pharisees and he gives them, we'll look at it in just a second, he gives them a rather sobering pronouncement. He, he lets them know, really in no uncertain terms, that it's not going to go well for Jerusalem and for Israel as a result of their rejecting the Messiah, Jesus. Now, they haven't done it yet. They haven't even rejected him yet. So, Jesus is just demonstrating who he is as God. But that teaching births the teaching in Matthew 24, 25 that we'll look at, begin to look at today. But in Matthew chapter 23, in verses 37 through 39, Jesus gives this this rather somber pronouncement. Here's what he says. Oh, Jerusalem... Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling, watch this, 
Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. House may, may be a reference to the nation of Israel in general, but it may particularly be a reference to the temple of God. We'll talk more about in a moment. Your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 39, Jesus gives this pronouncement on the nation of Israel. And it's a very somber pronouncement. I've got some things I want to say about it, but I'm going to do a little sidebar right here, okay? This really has nothing to do with my sermon, but I just, I just want to do it. Um, those verses, Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, are a problem for those who, in my opinion, have distorted what is known as the doctrine of election by teaching that God has chosen everyone that's going to be saved. Everyone's going to be a part of the family of God. God has already chosen them, and He, in fact, chose them before they were even born. It's already been decided, according to what they would say. It's already been decided. Nothing you can say, nothing you can do has any merit, any part in it whatsoever. You're either in or you're out, and there's nothing you can do about it. That teaching is sometimes referred to as Calvinism, some other names, but probably the most popular one today is Calvinism, named after the theologian who formulated and popularized that position, John Calvin. Now, let me say, um, there, there are many people who would hold to Calvin's teaching and, and would 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 consider themselves a Calvinist, a person that holds to that belief in the doctrine of election that says God has chosen everybody already and there's nothing you can do about it. I have pastor friends who would consider themselves Calvinistic. Some of the largest churches in our area would, would hold to uh, that position. You may be here and you may think, I think that's right. I think God has already chosen everybody and it's already decided and already done. There's nothing can do about it. I would certainly agree with many of Calvin's teachings and, and, and many even of the points of his formula. John Calvin was a brilliant theologian who helped, helped bring back the people to an understanding of the, of the supremacy and the priority of the Word of God in our lives. Calvin, as much as anybody, taught people that the Word of God is our standard. The Word of God is our guide. Not, not personal preferences, not personal opinions, not public opinions, not, not desires or wishes, or, but the Word of God is what, what guides our life. The Word of God is, should be the decision-making instrument for our lives. John Calvin had a lot to do with helping people rediscover that truth. But when it comes to Calvinism's belief that it is all said and done, that you have nothing to do with it, that you have no part in the decision-making process. I'm not saying you have a part in your salvation, but that you have no part in the decision-making that's already been decreed, as I said, even before you were even born. I'm sorry. Calvinism is wrong. Now, listen to me. The doctrine of election. 
I know y'all, what, what, the doctrine of election, the idea that, that it's all been ordained and God has already done it all and all that. So the doctrine of election is a mysterious subject matter of which I would not even begin to pretend to think that I have all the answers to. But Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, clearly show that God wanted one thing. He wanted the people to come to Him. He wanted the people to, how often I would have gathered you unto myself. God willed one thing. God wanted one thing. But the people were unwilling. The people chose something else. There's a choice in this somewhere, ladies and gentlemen. And I say that to you to say that the next time you're tempted to say something like, well, if it's God's will, it'll just be done. Be careful. Now, God is sovereign. God knows everything. God has plans, and and it's going to work out in the end exactly as God has planned. But that does not excuse yours or my personal responsibility and the decisions that we make in our life. Now, back to my sermon. (laughs) Matthew chapter 23, 37 through 39, Jesus gives this pronouncement on Jerusalem. It's not going to go well. And that opens the door for the end times teaching that Jesus does in chapter 24 and 25. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read it this morning. We're just going to barely scratch the surface of it. And then next week it's going to get really, really interesting. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to read it to you this morning. Jesus came out from the temple. Remember, this is right after his pronouncement in chapter 23. So he made that pronouncement there in the Temple Mount area. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. The temple buildings they would have just left. Seems interesting. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. The statement in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, that we read a few moments ago, must have been a hard pill for the disciples to swallow. 
Uh, it's kind of hard for us to understand this, but in the context of, of Israel in those days, you, you have to understand that their entire lives, they have been taught that the Messiah, when He comes, the Messiah or Savior, He will restore Israel to its former glory, that He will throw off the bondage that they have been under by various nations, but the current one during this time is the, is the empire of Rome. That when the Messiah comes, he's going he's gonna to destroy them. He's going to knock them off. He's going to restore Israel to the glory days of David and Solomon. And, and, and it's just going to be awesome. And Messiah is going to reign over the entire earth. Not just the nation of Israel, but over the entire earth. Uh, that's, that's a good message, right? That's kinda, yeah. That's uh, preachers say, that's red meat preaching. That's kind of stuff. You go, amen. Amen. That's right. And so when Jesus says, woe to you, Jerusalem. Your house is being left to you desolate. Now, that would have been hard for any Jew to take, right? But remember, these guys have thrown in with Jesus. And historically, we've talked about this in the past. There were people that came and go, and, and some people thought, well, maybe this is the Messiah, and maybe this is the Messiah. Well, these guys think he's the Messiah. They're going with Jesus. And Jesus just told them that it's not going to go well for Jerusalem and Israel. That must have been a hard pill to swallow. And so as they, as they come out of the temple, they go out one of the gates that, that would be around the wall of Jerusalem. And there were several gates that went all the way around and the city uh, proper was walled. They would have gone out that gate and they would have made their way across, as I said a moment ago, the Kidron Valley. And they're heading over to the Mount of Olives, which is when they were in Jerusalem, they would often stay to camp out among the olive trees and that sort of thing. So as the, in the picture here, you can kind of see, it kind of illustrates this would have been Jerusalem and they would have been coming out and they would have made their way down one of these little roads and across this valley and they would have headed up uh, to camp somewhere on the Mount of Olives. And as they're making that trip, as they're going, maybe they're just kind of chewing on what Jesus had just said and he'd, he'd kind of slam the Pharisees, which they probably didn't mind too much, but that, that Jerusalem comment, that Jerusalem crack, I mean, come on, that's, come on, Jesus. Which I think is exactly what's going on when they stop him at some point along the journey. And as, as Matthew says, we just read uh, the text, they point out uh, the, the buildings, the walls of Jerusalem. For I, um, go on, give me the verse, I'm sorry, where he asks for, uh, came up to point out the temple buildings to him. His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So they're walking across, they're down, through, they're going through wherever, at some point through the Kidron Valley, they're heading up Mount of Olives, and the disciples say, whoa, 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 Jesus. They point out the temple buildings. Now, Mark gives us a little more detail than Matthew does in this particular instance. Mark chapter 13 says, and he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I mean, he's just been there, right? It's his house. But they're like, whoa, Jesus, stop. He's heading, and they turn around. And you see, they turn around. Look, Jesus, look at what, what wonderful stones. Look at what beautiful buildings. What, look at what a magnificent structure this is. Listen, it was. By all accounts, the temple in Jerusalem was magnificent. I was reading that the Jewish historian Josephus said that the stones, or at least some of the stones, in the construction or in the structure of the temple itself. Get this now. I started to walk it off, but I don't have time. Some of the stones were 50 feet long, 24 feet 
wide. I think I'd get to the red curtain, uh, black curtain before I'd even get to 24 feet. 50 feet long, 24 feet wide, and 16 feet thick. One stone. According to Josephus, they were white in color. They almost gleamed. It was a magnificent structure, and it was the pride of all Jews, the temple. And it sat up on Jerusalem, literally on a hill, and they were, they were proud of it, not, not only for its magnificence, not only for its beauty, but because that temple represented the fact that the Jews had a special relationship with the one true God. He was their God. And now Jesus come on along and kind of dissing on Jerusalem and saying, uh, gonna been left to you desolate. So I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm convinced this is exactly what the disciples were doing. I think they're, they're, they're basically either correcting Jesus or trying to remind him, whoa, 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 whoa Jesus, check out the temple. You know what they're saying? This is, this is God's house. This is where we meet God. This is where we worship God. We offer sacrifice to God. God's not going to let anything happen to this building. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. I'm telling you, I, I'll bet not another word was spoken. The rest of that journey, across that Kidron Valley, on up to the camping site, not a word. Because what Jesus said to them would have been truly shocking to a Jew. Shocking. Well, what about, I thought God protected his people. Watch out now. Why would God let that happen? I thought God protected his people. Listen to me. Moving out from underneath God's will, which is what the Jewish people were doing by rejecting Messiah. Moving out from underneath God's will is a very dangerous thing, ladies and gentlemen. Both for the Jews and for our lives personally. They, they rejected God's gift of his son. They crucified, or they're going to crucify their Savior. And they chose their own way instead of God's way. And that will always bring consequences, ladies and gentlemen, in our lives. But at some point, after they've had a chance maybe to process some of this, chew on what he said in, in chapter 23, and then now this statement about, I'm telling you, not one, one stone is going to be left standing on another. After they've had a chance to process this a little bit, get the Coleman stove going, get the tent set up, whatever all they did, they go up to Jesus. <laughs> and they, they go up to Jesus and they ask him some questions. First question is this. They wanted to know when. When. Jesus, when is this going to... When, meaning this house left you desolate, this one stone not left on another, this destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When is this going to happen, Jesus? That'd be kind of an important question to know, right? Because you're like... I mean, imagine if, if you received a, a warning from the government that you know, a terrorist attack was going to come, or whatever it was. When is this going to happen? Now, interestingly, Matthew doesn't really answer this question, I don't think. Matthew jumps on some other stuff that we'll get to in just a few minutes. Matthew doesn't really answer this question, but Luke does, which is okay, by the way, because what are known as the gospel letters, those first four books in your New Testament, the gospel letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those letters were always intended to be taken in their totality. That it is, it is in their totality that we get the full picture of Jesus Christ, who He was and what it was that He accomplished. Uh, they're all four correct. They all four give 
eyewitness accounts and all that sort of thing, but they're taken in their totality to get a fuller picture of what was done. And in Luke chapter 21, we find this. In, in Luke, in that passage of Luke, if you have a chance to go there, he's dealing with the same thing Matthew is. It's that Olivet Discourse teaching. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. So he says, all right, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, recognize that her desolation is near. And then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days because of how hard it was going to be. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of Gentiles is fulfilled. I love that last part because it's just one more time. It's just God saying, hold on, wait a minute. Not the end of the story. There's always hope, isn't there? With God, there's always hope. There may be consequences. There may be judgment. There may be uh, discipline that God has to bring in, but God always has hope for his people. Until Jerusalem is trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In 70 AD, not a blank for that, but you can write it in if you want it up to you. In 70 AD, just 40 years after Jesus made this prediction, this prophecy, the Roman general Titus sacked the city of Jerusalem, destroyed it, leveled the temple, the glorious, majestic, beautiful temple where according to historical accounts, there was literally not one stone still standing on another, just as Jesus said it would be. So the answer to the first question, when? 70 AD. When, when is this, this stuff, this woe to Jerusalem, when is this destruction of the temple, when is this going to happen? It happened 40 years after Jesus predicted it in 70 AD. The second question they asked They asked about the sign of Christ's return. Now, we'll deal with that later in the chapter, okay, over the next few weeks. But, suffice to say at this point that Jesus talks about, they're interested in, about the time when Christ returns to establish His kingdom. They understood that that was part of the the messianic promise, to establish His kingdom. Oh, I didn't, I didn't get into that. I kind of skipped over all that. But, but that, that whole idea is, is that the, the Messiah is the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior. It's really what the, what the word means. The word Christ is the same word as the Hebrew word Messiah. There, anytime you see Christ in a Hebrew text, it would be Messiah. That's how we would say it. And it meant deliverer, anointed one, Savior. They're looking for this guy, Right? They're expecting this guy to come. And so they know that the Christ is going to establish his kingdom. And if, if it appears that it's not going to be now, they want to know when is this going to happen? When is the destruction of the temple and all that going to happen? But what's going to be a sign of the coming of Christ? They're referring to his coming to earth to establish his earthly kingdom. We talked a lot about that in the book of Revelation. But 
his literal coming to earth to establish a kingdom. I'm emphasizing that because in my my end times, my eschatological view, uh, Christ is actually going to come twice. He comes the first time in the clouds and calls up those who are his body, the church. He's going to call us up to meet him in the air, and then he will come later, second time, all the way to earth and establish his kingdom on earth. Before that time, or in between those two comings, is an event that we refer to as the Great Tribulation Period, which is a time of seven years, will last seven years. It is that period, the Great Tribulation Period, and that seven-year period of time that Jesus spends a significant amount of the Olivet Discourse discussing, and we'll see that as we move on. But the second question, sign of the return of Christ. And then the third question, they asked about the sign of the end of the age. Now, in some sense, and some scholars do, and there's no problem with it, but in some sense, the second and third question can go right together because we know that the return of Christ and the end of the age will be at the same time. But in this case, I think it's kind of important to differentiate them and kind of separate them because it seems to be that that's what Jesus deals with first in Matthew, in Matthew's record of Jesus' answer. He seems to deal first with this answer of what are signs of the end of the age. What are those things that we can look for? What are those things that we can expect in our lives? Now, let me close with this. In in the latter part of Matthew 23, and talking about 23 because 23 sets the stage for 24 and 25, Jesus says to, to the Pharisees and the Jews who are gathered there, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a quote from Psalm 118, 26. Psalm 118, 26 is, is what is considered a messianic statement. It's a statement about the Messiah. It's a statement about the Christ. In this case, blessed is he who is the name of the Lord, was, there was a belief that that statement would be proclaimed when the Messiah came. That that's what the people would shout, that they would recognize him as Messiah, and they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus says, I say to you, you'll not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So for one thing, in case you didn't realize it, Jesus is proclaiming himself Messiah by making that statement. But what's interesting to me about this statement, we're going to close here in just a second with this. What's interesting about this statement, that Jesus says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What I think is fascinating about that is that they had just used that very statement about Jesus when he entered Jerusalem for the final week of his life. They had just made that very proclamation in, um, I think it's in Mark. We find this, Mark 11. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. That's what it means. It was just, again, it was another kind of a messianic thing. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna 
in the highest. They're just shouting it. And if, if you're familiar with the story, they're waving palm branches, which was part of the messianic thing. And they're laying down their cloaks and Jesus is riding in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the, on the donkey. And, and they're, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessings he who comes in the name of the Lord. So my question is, why would Jesus say, you'll not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, if they had just said that to him? I'll tell you why. And it's what we'll close with. Because Jesus always knows the heart. That's why. In this case, Jesus knows that these same people who are crying out, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. In essence, they're saying the Messiah has arrived. But remember, they're looking for a Messiah who's going to restore Israel to his glory. They're looking for a Messiah who's going to throw off Roman bondage. And when they find out a few days later that that's not what Jesus is going to do, they change their name, they change their tune from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. Crucify him. It's the fickleness of people's hearts. Now listen to me. There's a lesson in there for us, ladies and gentlemen. God always knows our hearts. So before we say, or before someone says, uh, yeah, Jesus is Lord, I believe Jesus is Savior, they better make sure they understand what that means. You're declaring him God. You're claiming that he has providence and authority over your life. You're saying uh, no turning back in adversity, which there will always be for followers of Jesus in this world, by the way. No let up in intensity. We're following Christ. We're going with him because he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And he is, he is, he is Jesus. He is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And that's what you're proclaiming. Oh, oh, he's off on the caffeine there, buddy. I mean, you're not going to get many people in the doors. You're not going to get many people coming down the aisles if you start talking about this kind of idea of, of Jesus as Savior. Nobody wants to see people coming down their aisles, aisles and giving their lives to Christ and becoming a part of cross-culture more than I do. Nobody wants to see these seats filled up once, twice, three times on a Sunday more than I do. But this is the truth, ladies and gentlemen. I, I, I love you, and I, I just believe this is the desire of your heart. I'd rather have ten people who understand and who are committed to what it truly means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus than a thousand that are just halfway playing with this thing. He's Lord of all. He's not Lord at all. And what he says in Matthew 24 and 25 is important for our lives because the end is coming. Next week, next year, 50 years from now, I don't know. But one way or the other, the end is coming for every single one of us. And we need to be prepared. And so does the world around us. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples ask some great questions that have relevance for our lives today. With all the uncertainty in the world, Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse teaches us that God is in control. And the end will come exactly when He has determined. Followers of Jesus don't have to live with the fear and anxiety that most of the world does. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. 
Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross-Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.